Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Nick C., and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'll be discussing a new edited volume, The Rutledge Handbook of Contemporary Central Asia, published in 2021 by Rutledge. And I'll be talking with the editors of that volume, Dr. Erica Marat and Dr. Rico Isaacs, both who are returning guests on the podcast. Dr. Erica Marat is an associate professor at the College of International Security Affairs uh, at the National Defense University in Washington, and Rico Isaacs is associate professor of politics at the University of Lincoln uh, in the UK. He is also the editor of the Central Asian Survey. Rico and Erica, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Hi. Good to be here again. And I'm very excited to have you here to talk about this um, very exciting handbook, um, and to kind of begin our, our conversation today, I want to ask you about the idea of the book and to explain for our listeners who might not know, what exactly is the purpose of a Rutledge handbook? And um, yeah, just share a little bit about that process um, and, and then we can get into some of the details of the handbook. Yeah, I, I, I can start us off if you like, Nick. Yeah, please. So, um I had been thinking, well, for some time, I mean, I've been teaching Central Asian politics uh, for for well over a decade. And for some time, of course, as a a teacher of Central Asian politics and and, and teaching the region to students, there hadn't been a single volume or or a text that had been available to kind of use as some kind of course guide. And for some time, I'd already been sort of considering the the plausibility of writing a textbook. And I'd had a number of meetings with... um, sort of textbook editors with, with various publishers over the years, but it was, but for them, there was never any sort of market for it um, in that sense. Um, so I'd, to some extent, I'd always envisaged an idea of having a general text about, about Central Asia that brought together or offered some kind of synthesis of the, of the field as it had been developing that could also be used as a sort of pedagogic tool. Um, and then at some point in 2018, I, I was approached by uh, one of the commissioning editors of, of from from Routledge, um, who inquired whether I'd be interested in editing a a handbook on Central Asia. So Routledge have this series of handbooks. If you go on their website, you'll see there's you know there's a whole all kinds of there's probably a handbook for everything in one sense. Um, 
And and in terms of your question of what it what is a Routledge handbook, I mean, actually, it depends to some extent on what the authors want it to be. It can be simply a reference book. It could actually be a repository which for the most recent research um, or a more general text. So I think it's these these books that are produced by Routledge, which somehow are supposed to bring together a synthesis of, of the field. But it can be done. It can be cut in a number of different ways. Um, so when they, I mean, I'd done, you know, I'd put, my first book was published with Routledge and I had um, an edited volume with them uh, on, on nation uh, building uh, back in 2016. So I had a relationship with the publisher already. And so they approached me about this and I was, I, I'd just come off finishing another edited volume. And I have to be honest, my, I was like, oh, I, I don't want to do another edited volume. <laughs> there are a lot of work. Um, uh and also the prospect of putting together a handbook, which is a much larger kind of text to put together. You're managing, you know, up to, uh, I think initially there was going to be 35 contributions. It's such a big task. And and so it was clear to me that I I, I didn't want to do this on my own um, in many ways. And so the long and short of it is I wrote a, uh, I wrote a, a general proposal for Routledge, um, which broke it down into these themes. So I had a, a sense that, to some extent from my own sort of teaching and reading and studying the region for the last uh, almost well 20 years what, what I imagined were the sort of the, the key themes within the sort of broader Central Asian studies discipline if we're going to call it a discipline or field um, and that became the basis of of the proposal and that's at the point when um, I, I, I kind of sent it to, to Erica and, and was you know uh, wondering if she'd be interested in co-editing it with me um, I'd always been a big fan of Erica's work I'd always used it a lot in teaching and um, yeah and I, I was and so I was really happy actually when she when she agreed to sort of come on board and and, and be involved um, yeah but in ten, but in terms of just going back to the question about audience so I think to some extent the the intended audience is uh, uh, multiple I think it is aimed at um, potentially uh, sorry, it was supposed to be aimed at um, having a uh, to, to be sort of used pedagogically. So the idea is that you could sort of you you know pick up a you know a, a chapter and it could be used in teaching, or you could have students read it prior to a class. Um, but it also could be there for a general reader if they wanted to have a sense of Islam in Central Asia. The late you know a synthesis of the research of, on, in the field about Islam, a kind of up to date up to date sense of what's going on. Then they could pick up the handbook and they would find, um, you know, that entry um, about sort of Islam, for example. So, so, and but you know, in that sense, it's so it was open to sort of NGOs, policymakers, general readers, but but also people in our our field, and but but I think also principally, um, yeah, as a pedagogic tool, was certainly one, one of the key ways in which I wanted it, hopefully, to be to be used. Great, yeah, and, and Erica, if you want to add anything, sure. Please. Um, it was uh, I had similar sentiments that there isn't one book uh, that uh, can be used to teach Central Asia, and um, I was very happy when uh, Rico approached uh, with this proposal to uh, co-edit um, a book on Central Asia, and uh, it looked uh, very logical, organized. Um, along topics so i was happy to join the project great and uh, so so this is very useful because 
um, especially for the purposes of, of this podcast, because it, it also gives us an opportunity to talk about the development of the field of Central Asian studies over the last 30 years, which is kind of one of the themes you talk about in the introduction of the book is um, where where we've come and, and, and where the field exists uh, now in 2021. Um, and yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about this kind of big picture of the field of Central Asian studies, because as you write um, in the book, Central Asian studies was kind of a um, long in the realm of Russian academia, uh, which framed narratives on the region, uh, mostly for an international audience. And then there was this shift um, when kind of Western scholarship took over in the 1990s. And so I, I want to ask, like, how and why do we see this shift in the 1990s, uh, which, you know, you, you to some extent were, were part of the continuation of this shift? And, um, yeah, what's behind that? Is it is it simply the, the collapse of the Soviet Union or is there something else? And what are the major themes we see changing um, broadly? Or if you want to speak to your field specifically, um, I'd, I'd be happy to hear about that. I, I can make a start on this if, if, if you like. Um, there's two things to say. I'd, I'd slightly challenge the, the assumption that Central Asian Studies was merely in the realms of sort of Russian academia. Because uh, I think certainly in the 60s and the 70s, emerging out of a couple of particular schools in the US, for example, um, there was a lot of interest in um, the, uh, um, uh, the the Muslims of, of, of the Soviet Union. And in particular, the idea of the sort of Muslim identities being resistant identity, resistance identities in the Soviet Union. And actually out of that, you, you had the... Um, the, the sort of the school in Chicago, uh, the school in Columbia that was, it was, I mean, but it's potted within that sort of broader basket of sort of, of sort of Soviet nas- national identity studies. Um, and that was kind of, but it was, yeah, but so Central Asian studies as a kind of discrete area field of study that you could broadly describe as interdisciplinary sort of across social sciences and humanities was part of Slavic stroke Russian studies. And then of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that, that, that changes um, when, I mean, it changes for a number of reasons. I mean, you could argue sort of access is one, one of the biggest things that change, but for, certainly for Western scholars, I mean, Eric will have a sort of different perspective on this in terms of coming from the region herself. Um, but so access is a, is, a, is a big sort of shift in terms of, you know, Western scholars being able to actually go to the region and um, undertake research. Um, and of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, I mean, for myself, coming from a political science perspective, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of, it's cliched to say, but there was this idea with, you know, this is in the 1990s and with all the sort of transitology debates, there was this this idea that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of a sudden you have all of these countries apparently going through some kind of transition where you can test all these broader theories about democratization or authoritarianism, um, also in the realm, of course, of economics too. So, and, and Central Asia was part of that, you know, continuum to something, that geographical continuum in terms of um, transition states from Central Eastern Europe out to out to Central Asia. So I think that also largely plays a role 
and of, and of course you know for myself personally you know the the questions that interested you know the, the, one of the reasons why i became interested in the study of the region were those in, those questions about power and authoritarianism and durability of um political systems and and i you know i this sort of the, the this sort of sense of failure of that kind of transitology um, perspective from from the 1990s and that was always sort of my entry point in in the early 2000s right so i completely take what uh, rico says about that the russian and soviet scholarship was not the only one and there were um there was interest developing in the west as well i think from the central asian perspective the soviet and russian um scholarship and take of the region was so dominating throughout the soviet regime it basically uh, it, it, let's be frank it, it basically stopped production of any g- genuine critical research in central asia that would be independent of the soviet propaganda um, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, that opened up a lot of space um, and opportunities for Central Asian scholars to both learn from uh, Western scholarship and also produce um, own scholarship uh, for the international audiences. But it took it really took time. I think it took a couple of decades before Central Asian voices became not only present, but actually heard widely and considered as credible um, and um, considered uh, included into international discussions, uh, not as just those standalone localized voices, but as uh, scientific and academic and analytical voices. And uh, But this is not to say that, and I read that for the introduction, quite polemic introduction for the special issue in um, Central Asia Survey, uh, journal. This is not to say that the discussions and understanding of what Central Asia is, what kind of processes are taking place on the local, national, regional levels or international levels um, did not or do not exist in Central Asia. Um, it's always been there. The understanding of, of what's going on in Central Asia, the processes, the analysis, um, it's always been there in classrooms, um, around kitchen tables, um, in various uh, events, conferences. So it's always been there. There's a real realization and understanding. And um, the, I think the, the, the gap, the distance between what's discussed in Central Asia about Central Asia and what's discussed outside of Central Asia is closing. Uh, but there is a little, there is quite a bit more to be done uh, to have a really um, this diverse, inclusive discussion where perspectives um, from various positionalities and contexts uh, compete with each other on equal footing and not just um, one dominates over the other. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally agree with what Eric has just said there. I mean, I, I would also add that not only have, of course, those Central Asian voices and scholarly voices always been there. But those are precisely the voices that, you know, West, you know, in the 90s and the sort of 2000s that Western scholars were going out into the field talking to, you know, and in that sense shaped the understanding of, of sort of Western scholarship on Central Asia. But of course, it's absolutely only right um, that, you know, you get parity in terms of, um the ability of Central Asian scholars to have that voice that is recognised internationally within the field, 
um, and and you overcome that inequity that's existed for a long time. I mean, Central Asian studies, I don't think is is alone in this in terms of sort of regions of the global south who struggle with some of the structural inequalities in terms of international education, um, in terms of you know access to resources and so on, and access to huge you know expensive library databases that, of course, institutions in the West, you know, in universities in Europe and the US, as scholars we have fairly straightforward access to and of course in many central asian countries and of course other countries in in the global south they it's more difficult that type of access and um yeah that's something that's those broader structural questions or issues are, are, are something that are much tougher i think to overcome in in the longer term yeah and i i did want to kind of um come to this specific uh question because you know you do talk about um, kind of two parts that I see in this discussion about like how the field is still somewhat splintered, especially between Western scholars and, and Central Asian scholars. You say, on the one hand, there is this kind of richer discussion going on. Western scholars and Central Asian scholars are talking to one another, but yet there's still this bigger, deep, deep kind of inequity in research uh, resources. Um, also in the way that, that um, I think there's kind of a gap in, in citing one another, right? Especially Western scholars not citing local research or, or Central Asian-based research, or if they do, only in Russian language, only in the Russian language, but not in local languages. So, um, not that there are easy answers to this, but I'm curious: um, why is this divide so persistent? Especially this one of uh, deep inequity in research resources and in research publications, and what can you know, scholars do um, on an individual level, on a structural level, uh, to tackle some of these problems. Since many of our listeners are probably people um, involved in in kind of academic research on Central Asia, I can take this. I guess um, I think I think it, uh, just as as Rico said, um, it is an issue with um, global South versus global West, uh, or sorry, global North. Uh, but the, you know, within Western academia, there's also there are areas that are not covered as much as other areas. Um, but that's a different debate. I think um, you're absolutely right that there is an issue with uh, citing local scholars, especially if they're not writing in English, Russian, uh, but let's say they're writing in Tajik or Kyrgyz or Kazakh. Um, and that's a, that's a problem of uh, the dominance of English language academia. And uh, this is something not just Central Asian area studies, but any area studies, even Western area studies need to constantly analyze. And I, I see it as a bigger, deep discussion in area studies in general, that you make an effort to see beyond what is published in uh, in uh, Western dominated outlets. And uh, this is it, it is a learning process and uh, it has to be proactive. It has to be um, intentional for um for scholars, and I'm, I'm part of this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this effort to be able to um, almost uh, set a, pers- a benchmark personally for the work I produce that uh, unless I um, consult and learn from uh, resources that were not published in English, um, that, you know, my work is not complete. Uh, there, there is something I'm definitely missing, and it's a learning process for me. I hope it is also for others. And um, I think some of the initiatives that we see now happening uh, in bringing 
out those local languages or analysis in local languages are amazing. Uh, one of them is um, what Marlene Laruel does. She's publishing now two journals, one in Kazakh and one in Kyrgyz on uh, the GW platform. Um, I think Oxford Society did a good job uh, making a depository of all the books and all the languages produced by um, authors in Central Asia. And again, this is a bigger discussion on area studies. How do we look beyond um, Western perspective uh, perspectives on what's going on in various parts of the world? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, again, I would agree completely with Erica. But, but I think, I mean, we're also caught up in other hierarchies here as well, Um it, particularly when we're talking about citation and even thinking within Western scholarship, the prevalence of citing perhaps higher prestige recognized journals over others. Um, you know, and it, it's a set of hierarchies which are well established in academia, um, or at least, sorry, sorry, Western academia, um, that, that are, you know, very tough to break down. I do think in, in terms of Central Asian studies that that uh, distinction between Western scholars and Central, A- Central Asian scholars is beginning to be broken down. You're seeing much more collaboration with, you know, and, and hopefully, for example, our book was an effort to try and bring on board as many Central Asian scholars as we could. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it isn't perfect. We would have liked more, for example. But I think that sort of barrier is being broken down, and and in particular in terms of co-production of knowledge as well between both, you know, Westerners. And um, uh, and and those from the region itself. I mean, there's also a point where we can start to problematize the concept of you know what is Western scholarship as well. I mean, that's another <laughs> Pandora's box to open, um, and the extent to which we can talk about scholarship in these these sort of discrete normative terms that right. you know we have these boxes that's Western or that's local. And um, actually, if we can get to a point where those types of terms don't make a lot of sense, then we might be getting somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was thinking is, is hopefully the, the, the distinction starts to disappear a little bit, especially as, as both groups or several groups are reading each other, citing each other, having common conversations. Um, yeah, and I guess we'll kind of leave that discussion there. But I think, it, you know, one thing I was thinking as you were talking is it's also interesting to see how this is within the, the different kind of disciplines of Central Asian studies that this seems to be happening in different ways. But that's for another time, perhaps. Um, I'd like to get in a little bit more about the book itself. Um, and so I always have a, a bit of a challenge uh, interviewing about these these types of, um, sorry, interviewing for these types of edited volumes, um, as opposed to uh, single author monographs where I can talk about the methodology, research, and conclusions. Um, so instead, I kind of want to focus on the logic of how you organize the essays in this book. Um, and I also want us to think about how kind of recent scholarships, recent scholarship, especially in the last five to 10 years, has, has nuanced our understanding of, of different aspects of Central Asian uh, politics, economy, and, and just Central Asian studies in general. So you organize the book along these major themes within Central Asian studies, such as history, politics, international relations, geography, political economy, society and culture, and finally, uh, religion. So could you tell us a little bit about why you organized the book this way? Uh, When you started um, kind of going after submissions, did you imagine that these were the themes that you would end with? Or did you kind of 
solicit submissions and then reorganize the book around those specific themes. Um, and then finally, what, what do you think the strengths of organizing the book this way are? And um, are there any potential fit, pitfalls um, or things that you kind of grappled with as you were editing the volume? Um, I, I can start and then, um, uh, on this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said at the beginning, I, I had a, I honestly was just thinking in terms of, okay, what does, in my head, what does the field look like in terms of sort of broad disciplinary themes? And, uh, and also how can that translate into something if, you know, something that has kind of ped- pedagogical use or, and in that sense, you know, the, to some extent, the history, you know, you start with history. Okay. We can have a kind of, because one of the things I certainly start, you know, struggle with students from, from the UK uh, and teach and, and teaching Central Asia is, you know, they, they, they just can't grasp pre-Soviet Central Asian history. It's a real struggle for them to, to say so my mind, actually, I was thinking about my students, like how can, uh, there'd be a section a historical section that actually gives them that kind of a clear narrative about sort of his history of uh, the history of the region um what i would say is, so i think you know the different parts sorry the different sections history politics geography ir political economy society and culture and religion as i said i think i just drew them out as those were what i saw as kind of the major broad themes that would kind of make sense in disciplinary terms um, but that said, when you ask this question about pitfalls, I'm often thinking about, well, of course, there could be additional sections that could have been added. One thing um, that strikes me now, uh, I, when, when, I, when I started this, I, I wasn't editing the journal. And since then, I think I have an even better kind of understanding of what's obviously being produced in research terms. Um, and, and definitely something like education is missing in here um there's also the question of you know when we're talking you know talking about central asia actually how are we defining central asia and and obviously in the book we we more or less you know keep it to the five former soviet republics rather than broadening it out and thinking about of course sort of western china that sort of broader sense of central asia so that's also sort of geographically there's also an issue in which you know the book doesn't cover um so I think yeah, things like education is is missing. Also, all the work in archaeology, and that sort of much deeper um, Central Asian history. So even the, the the history that's presented here is very modern, but actually the book is supposed to be contemporary Central Asia. So in, in that sense, I feel um, and we are we are justified. Um, and then in terms of uh, so when when I wrote the proposal, I actually put down a kind of ideal. Um, list of people that and just thinking about okay who who would be great to write on this and 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 and, that, and I did a kind of wish list basically and, and that's kind of and and um and then you know once Erica was on board we we, we approached people now that of course changed some people didn't want to be involved and uh we came up with sort of alternatives and um yeah it was it was a, a kind of process of negoci- negotiation really uh, in that sense there was no exact science to it, like all good research. No, but I liked I liked how it was not focused on uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, like uh, so many uh, previous uh, handbooks did it, or 
edited volumes did it, which were also great uh, in their own way. But it focused on themes um, that are well well researched and uh, un- unite uh, different contexts into into one. I also want to say on the previous pre-Soviet history, no wonder there isn't much on pre-Soviet history because it wasn't produced during the Soviet regime. There was no access to archives. There's still lack of access to archives. History was written in a certain way during the Soviet regime uh, that suited the Soviet rule. But it, uh, as my good friend Bota Kasindekova says, that there's, there was a hundred years of uh, lack of production of histories in, in, in that part of the world, including South Caucasus, Ukraine, and all other countries. So we now need to rediscover what actually happened before the Soviet regime again. Yeah, and, and, and I think we are, you know, as this this section on history shows, like we're starting to see like a more nuanced, interesting uh, retelling of that, especially pre-1917 or even pre-Russian um, conquest uh, history uh, in Central Asia, um, you know, just, I, yeah. Sorry. So just to go back on the sort of the the, the the choice, the sort of thematic choice over sort of country case study. I mean, that always made sense to me because um, you you want to uh, you want to focus across countries in many ways, you know, the, 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 and and also be able to sort of compare both similarities and differences around sort of different themes, rather than somehow treating each Central Asian country independently although they of course all have their own unique dynamics but they also share um uh, uh, many kind of similar processes in which they're, they're going through and there's a lot of value in being able to offer that sort of thematic account over and above just a kind of discrete here's kazakhstan or here's kyrgyzstan and, and so on yeah and to illustrate this i actually want to jump to the section on politics um because i think it it, it kind of demonstrates this this pretty well how we see an attempt to talk about differences, um, some of which have to do with national borders, but but some of which um, fall on different categories, I would say. Um, so, you know, in this section, we have kind of a study, uh, for, for instance, that compares different authoritarian regimes in Central Asia. We have a chapter on clan politics in Kyrgyzstan. There's a chapter on contemporary nation building. Um, with a specific focus there on how states use national identity and solidarity to build public support. And then there's this really interesting chapter at the end that looks at uh, the Vergana Valley and the the people who live there with a specific focus on how traders, farmers, uh, and border guards negotiate their livelihoods across these different borders. So that's a really interesting example because, you know, here the, the nation kind of category breaks down a little bit. I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but but it, it, it actually is really important uh, to see that happening on the ground. Um, and so I want to think about, um, what, you know, coming back to the question I brought up at the beginning of the interview, which is what's new about what we know about Central Asia, right? Um, and what seems to unite these chapters for me is an attempt to break down uh, previous kind of simplistic explanations of how Central Asian politics used to work or, or work. Uh, we see that they each take kind of a category, authoritarian regime, clan politics, national identity, national border, and try to complicate these and show how politics actually operate uh, on the ground. So can you talk a little bit about these chapters and how they might challenge this kind of inherited wisdom um, on politics in Central Asia? 
I can start. Uh, let me let me highlight um, a couple of chapters here. So one by Oksana Ismailbekova, um, who talks about informal governance um, and clans, and another by Madeleine Reeves. Um, so Oksana builds uh, an argument based on her anthropological approach to the notion of clans and um, corruption. She um, challenges the pre-existing ideas that money drive clan alliances, um, this sort of neo-patrimonial nature of explaining uh, how corruption and clan identities work. And she looks more at how... uh, family relations and clan relations um, are more important in um, in, in what we call corruption, how uh, there are certain expectations uh, for uh, among uh, members of a certain clan uh, to be represented in the government. And those identities are more important during um, periods of political instability. Uh, and, uh, and she takes, of course, the case of Kyrgyzstan that has seen many political, um, much, uh, uh, you know, many, many regime changes and how during those regime changes, this patrimonial family relations play a big role in finding positions. Um, and there was a huge pressure on those who take power to deliver to their clan members. Um, and then there is also, of course, uh, Madeline Reeves uh, with her amazing work. Um, she summarizes much of her scholarly work in one chapter on how the very institutions um, and regulations to build um, territories and demarcate um, borders in Central Asia they actually undermine those regimes. They make them more vulnerable, more volatile. Um, and she also discusses briefly the conflict that took place between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan as part of her analysis. One thing I would I would just add in terms of the politics section is that two things, actually. The first is, of course, if you study politics, you are, you're often studying different units of analysis. And I think each of these chapters offer that, you know, uh, at one level or another, they're, 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 they're studying politics in the region at a different kind of level of analysis. In David Lewis' chapters, it's the sort of broader systemic nature of politics. Um, and, and then, of course, in Aksana's chapter, it's, it's, to, it's, it's, it's the unit of the clan. But then the second thing I would add, of course, is that, um, and, and perhaps this is one of the strengths of the volume, that even though we have these discrete sections, that it is interdisciplinary. And I think one of the most exciting things actually about the study of politics in the region, or one of the most exciting developments perhaps in the last decade, has been its more interdisciplinary nature. Um, in the sense that, you know, you've got Madeleine Reeves and Aksana Ismenbekova's chapters, which are, you know, approaching to some extent what we would call political issues or from an anthropological perspective. And I think the same goes with, with the geography section as well. I think in particular you know, political geography has really opened up the way in which we think about, you know, sort of space and politics um, in in the region as well in in the last decade or so. So I think that's what's, you know, for, for me anyway, that's what's kind of exciting and unique about it, because certainly as someone that comes from a political studies background, actually often sort of and I've tried it myself in the past with, with 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 my research is just taking these very kind of straightforward frameworks and concepts and theories within the study of politics and trying to apply them and make sense of them in the case of Central Asia doesn't all, always work. 
And actually, what I tend to find most intellectually interesting and engaging are colleagues' works that's coming from other disciplines, from anthropology or political geography. And I think to some extent that this this section achieves that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, the, the kind of con- comparing this section uh, politics and non-geography, because I actually had a question about this. Um, because to some extent, they're answering very similar questions. Um, so this geography section kind of builds on the politics section to some extent, but, but it, it does pay a lot more attention to the environment and kind of the geography of the region, built space, as you say. There's there's a couple chapters on kind of urban environments. Um, but these are essentially uh, political questions. You know, there's a chapter in there on water politics, um, and then those two different chapters on kind of urban settings and, and the practice of power. I think those were in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. But basically, my question for you is, is how do these geography approaches uh, build on the previous politics section? What does a ge- geographic, geographical, I'm not sure, geography approach to this kind of research tell us that, that traditional politics can't? And, you know, um, is the bigger question, is this just a convenient way to, to group um, to group these research? Um, or are the distinctions between methodology really that, that secu- you know, kind of serious between those two sections? Mm. Um, so I don't think the distinction between them are, are that serious to warrant necessarily um, such a sharp distinction his politics and his geography, I think absolutely they're interlinked. Um, but of course, as you say, they do address, I mean, the, the four chapters in the geography section are to some extent addressing, um, in, in a straightforward sense, they're addressing issues which are, you know, environment related, water, um, borders and boundaries, cities, uh, and of course, urban sort of urban and environment, uh, environmental development. So, so in that sense, I think, um, that you know that's how you can justify them as being in a geography section but of course they 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 do they do tackle questions of politics and i think i mean i'll just reiterate kind of what i said because i think when i an early sort of vision of the book would have included kind of more you know straightforward chapters on constitutions or political parties or legislatures in in central asia but there is a question of how um, how useful that is in many ways to think about politics um, in in Central Asia and, and the types of political questions. I think one of the advantages of, in particular, you know, a, a more ge- political ge- ge- geography approach, in particular, is the way it can often give agency to um, local voices or at least lo- local activists, particularly around issues to do with, with urban development, and how you can often find in cities. Um, in particular, informal spaces and informal sites of resistance against uh, the regime and, and, and the authorities. Uh, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Um, um, so, yes. So let me highlight um, how creative it is um, that um, Alexander Dioner and uh, Vincent Ad- Adman uh, 
approached uh, the idea of boundaries, borders, and identities, how they talk not, not only about geographic borders, uh, but also borders between uh, different, um, and I hope to do justice to their work, different identities. So they don't only talk about this colonial Soviet-imposed uh, static borders on um on uh, Central Asian countries, but also borders between rural and urban, or boundaries of between um, or, or urban and rural, uh, between different um, expressions. Uh, let's say in the end of the chapter, they talk about the LGBT communities and LGBTQ communities, how there are certain boundaries around uh, those communities. So it's a really creative approach to construction of. Um, construction of boundaries and how that influences the mobility of people within those boundaries and their identities. Um, And then there are two chapters on cities. Uh, They're very different chapters. One is on the imagined, uh, or actually now actually physically constructed um, uh, landscape of Astana or Nur Sultan at this point. how it really channels both these grandiose architectural designs, but also authoritarianism. It's one other way of expression of authoritarian politics. And then there is um, a very interesting chapter by uh, Nasridinov, um, who talks about urban uh, activism for um So environmental urban activism, how different activists within Bishkek uh, tried to prevent city authorities, municipal authorities from uh, cutting down trees and what different repertoires they took to oppose it um, and how, you know, there was the tension between um, environmental um, degradation in the city and this aspiration for continuous uh, development uh, of the city for the economic growth. So yeah, those two chapters really show different dynamics that are, that take place within the city, and that's yeah, that's in the uh, section on uh, geography. I would just add. So just I mean, just talking about the specific chapters that Christine Bischel's, um uh, chapter on, on water is also kind of very creative in, in how it approaches it by using the Aral Sea as a starting point to talk about the history, the history of water politics in Central Asia. So not just in the chat, well, I, I mean, I particularly liked her chapters because it doesn't just kind of rehearse a lot of these similar debates that you see in the literature about upstream versus downstream and all the sort of ongoing tensions. She actually tells this very sort of unique and detailed story of the history of water politics in the region starting from the Aral Sea. No, that's really great. And I think these these last two examples um, that you just shared about, about kind of local activists um, challenging city authorities and then, you know, this history of the Aral Sea kind of from the, the perspective of water, right, um, and, and telling that history. This is this shows that, you know, there are kind of new creative approaches to the way that, that people are um, approaching kind of co- traditional questions um, and, and sometimes even posing new questions that haven't been asked. Um, and I think this fits into what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview about um, kind of trying to continue to push, um, you know, push back against uh, narratives we've inherited by by having conversations with um, a lot of people, you know, people who have perspectives on the region or, you know, talking to Central Asians themselves. You can see some of that in this work as well. 
Um, and I kind of want to carry that over. I think that's going to be a recurring theme um, as we go through each of these sections. But I want to talk about, um, you know, go go in a totally different direction and talk about international relations and political economy, which are the kind of next two sections of the book. Um, and specifically thinking about international relations this is something totally um, far from what I'm used to thinking about. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about kind of um, based on these chapters on international relations, what is the picture that emerges? Um, how do we see Central Asian states act, uh, interacting with, with different foreign entities, be it states or companies? Um, and how might this differ from something that we would have read, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years ago? Um, what's innovative about, about new approaches to international relations? And if you, would, if you want to take that question to political economy, we can do that as well. How about I talk about the IR section in uh, <laughs> Rika talks about uh, political economy. Um, so in the IR section, international relations section, it, um, I want to note how um, it, it is the usual analysis of the uh, Russia, China, United States, and in all of the chapters, again, uh, they are they present uh, the most recent uh, in-depth analysis of how different actors um, engage in Central Asia. But this chapter also includes, uh, oh, sorry, this section also includes a chapter on migration because it did become a matter of international relations for Central Asia with so many uh, of um, its uh, native natives going uh, mostly to Russia to work and how that changes. The relations between Central Asia and, and Russia uh, makes it interdependent, but in different ways. Um, and my chapter is on uh, how military institutions became one of the ways for Central Asian countries to engage with the world. And we see this happening today, again, with the uh, capturing, uh, with the advancement of uh, Taliban in Afghanistan, how this became one way of uh, finding uh, joint interest with international actors, uh, in- including Russia, China, and the United States. And um, th- just a few highlights uh, from um, the chapters here. Uh, Marlene Darwell, uh, just like it says in the title of her chapter, she talks about postcolonial perspectives in Central Asia of how there is more and more um, questioning on what the Soviet past meant, what what Russia, what Russia's interests really are in Central Asia, and how. Um, the, how alliances with um, with uh, Russia are um, shaped by different public um, opinions and in, in in the region as well. Um, Nargis Kasyanova goes really deep into analyzing uh, the roots of China Central Asia cooperation. She goes all the way before the. Um, pre-Soviet uh, history, and then uh, discusses the, the last few decades as well, of course, talking about Xinjiang first, and then how this cooperation between China and Central Asia grew into economic. Um, the a chapter on U.S. policy in Central Asia, again, very straightforward. Uh, Ziegler narrates how U.S. policy changed or not changed since the collapse of the Soviet regime. And then, of course, a chapter by Sharbek Juraev that explains that it's really kind of gives more agency to uh, Central Asian countries, how they choose and pick uh, how they engage with the world, um, explains some of the drivers. So we hope that uh, this whole section presented 
a comprehensive picture of the dynamics of how Central Asian countries engage with uh, their immediate neighbors and also internationally. I just wanted to add, and, and you can respond to this if you want, or we can just leave it there. But what I really like, so so in your chapter, which was on the kind of role of military institutions in shaping kind of state security um, and even in and even um, approaches to international relations. Um, and I kind of read that in combination with the, uh, the chapter on um, how labor migration affects politics. And what's interesting here is that we don't just see a model where the state is one entity. It makes decisions in a way that we can't really see how this is, how these decisions are being made at, at the top level. But we actually see that there are multiple factors influencing the state in different directions. So that's that's kind of one thing that I really liked about this section. Um, if you want to add anything, you can. Um, but, but that was kind of an important um, comment I wanted to make. And then maybe we can hear from, you know, so Erica, if you want to add anything, feel free. If not, we'll, we'll turn to uh, political economy uh, with Rico. Oh, yes, spot on. Everything you said, yes, how there are different ways of engaging um, with the international community, not just economic, uh, but security and migration, especially, presents a very interesting case. Yeah, I mean, to speak of uh, the political economy section, it it features four chapters. Um, Perhaps the most straightforward is uh, Richard Pomfret. I mean, he's he's a well-established and well-known economist. Um, who's focused on Central Asia throughout much of his sort of academic career, and he and he gives us a generally you know a good overview of um, different economic reform strategies across the region um, since independence in in nineteen ninety one, um, with of course a focus on oil, gas, and um, mineral exportation. Um, but it's but I mean it, Richard does a very good job essentially in sort of synthesizing a lot of his you know excellent scholarship that he's put together over over many decades actually um on 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 the economy and again you know if we're thinking about certain things that might be missing in this book you know the economic side of things perhaps is you know apart from richard's chapter which gives us an overview of um sort of economic reform we're we're you know we have a section on political economy but again Thinking about political geography and the politics section, there's interlinkages here as well um, between those three sections. I mean, of course, with IR as well, there's inter, you know when we're talking about states um, and the way in which we view states and in international relations. Of course, that interlinks a lot with the, the previous sections we were talking about geography and and, um, and politics. But I think some of the other chapters in the political economy section do um, challenge. Uh, certain narratives about the region and do offer uh, particular, you know, sort of fairly new insights, moving us away perhaps from conventional approaches. So, the chapter on oil, um, oil capital and labor, um, written by uh, Maurizio Totaro and Paolo Sorbello, um, is a really, you know, it's a really interesting work that I think represents. Um, the emergence of, you know, sort of in particular sort of young political economists coming through who, you know, are moving away from a lot of the literature that's always looked at um, oil resource uh, and, and, and situating in the literature around resource curse, rents and corruption. And actually, they've been much more interested in particular and Paolo's work. They're much more interested in terms of issues of labor practices in the oil sector, which makes sense. 
when you know particularly when you when you look at Kazakhstan and often what's going on there in terms of uh, strikes um, uh, frequent strikes uh, around the oil sector in Kazakhstan so in one sense it's great that you've got scholars finally sort of catching up with what's going on in the ground and that's represented I think particularly in um, Paolo and uh, Maurizio's chapter um, and also of course they have a, a kind of Gramscian uh, lens on it so you know Gramsci is very popular within political for, for political economists and and particularly with Italians so who would know uh, that Gramsci might be popular with Italians um yeah so, so so that's their kind of challenge to some extent to a lot of that resource curse literature um Johann Engvall's chapter is on corruption and of course Johann's work you know worked a lot on corruption and and um his his research is is excellent and again he challenges um in, in his chapter, again, building on from the research that he's done, he's challenging, again, certain sort of conventional held views about the logic of corruption in Central Asia. So often it tends to be viewed as a symptom of a weak state. But actually, he argues that, you know, we shouldn't, the, the fact that you get the looting of public resources and the underprovision of public goods, it's not necessarily a symptom of state dysfunction, but actually a core mechanism of the state. Um, and actually, it of course is is and is actually a core logic to some extent of political behaviour and um, political access to office as well. So, so his chapter, of course, is great for challenging certainly some of those very sort of normative views and perspectives that you can find sometimes in the policy community about corruption uh, in the region. The, then the the other chapter. Um, in the section which is on modernization and development in Central Asia, it's written by Liga Rodita and Carolina uh, Kluzeska. Um, and this chapter, I think, is quite unique. I, I, I was really happy that they both agreed to write this. They um, have had recent field work experience in both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, looking at different um, Western donor paradigms um, and ha- in, 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 uh, of development agents and how that shifted um, across the sort of 90s and into the 2000s. So how, it, you know, Western donors' um, practices in the region, or sorry, paradigms and their practices are shifting from focusing on sort of democratization and free market to more kind of um, security type um, paradigms and, and practices. And I don't think there had been a... I mean, one of the things I like about this chapter is I don't think there had been a uh, a piece of work anyway that really had brought together the development of development in Central Asia. Um, and so I think it's really nice for that. Actually, if you want to understand, well, what have Western donors, actually not just Western donors, but also the multiplicity of donors and, and development actors. So that, of course, includes China as well. Um, you know, what? How has that evolved over the region since the collapse of the Soviet Union? Then it's a it's a really good chapter to 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 get into. Yeah, great, and and thanks for bringing that up because I think again, you know, coming back to one of the themes we've been talking about, which is recentering local agency, local perspective, um, we start to see really interesting stories, and like the the oil politics kind of, or sorry, the the kind of labor organization around oil and how that affects um, kind of bigger questions, bigger, bigger problems is a perfect example of this, that these aren't, these aren't irrelevant, um, explorations, but actually they can tell us quite a lot. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, 
Real quickly, we, we do have a little bit of time left, so I want to talk about the last sections of the book, which are society and culture, and then there's this small section on kind of religion. Um, so I don't know, whoever wh- whoever wishes to answer can, can do this, but kind of, I'm curious, um, you know, this society and culture section has um, a heavy focus on anthropology, so we see studies concerning um, concepts like tradition, gender, application of gender in the Central Asian context, uh, the study of contemporary art, we see language policy. So real quickly, especially speaking to um, uh, people who, who are not anthropologists, what, what, how do these themes help us better understand Central Asia? Uh, what do they show us that the more typical fields of studies such as history, politics, IR, uh, fail to capture? Um, so we'll, we'll do that and then we can come back and, and talk about religion to round out the conversation. Uh, let, let me just uh, go real quick um, over the section on um, um, on society and culture. Uh, so uh, Svetlana Peshkova um, does a really good job exploring uh, gender, but beyond what we see as gender um, as women and uh, men, uh, how women are suppressed, uh, how men are suppressed. And she goes into all different uh, uh, gender uh, identities in Central Asia, how uh, they interact, how they're suppressed, uh, what are the... Um, what are the sources of suppression? So again, including the non-binary uh, gender identities or LGBTQ community, um, and um, and uh, so th- I think that that chapter is uh, innovative and in, in that sense presents the most uh, uh, the, the the most uh, enriching, encompassing uh, analysis uh, by Pieskova. Um and the, uh, the the chapter on national nationalization of tradition by Svetlana Jackson she. Um, explores this really complicated idea of how after the Soviet suppression of traditions, uh, the consideration of them as um, uh, some, some kind of backwards way of living, how they were revived and reimagined in the post-Soviet post-Soviet period. Um, and then I leave it to Rico to discuss the other uh, chapters. Um, just one point I want to I want to add is on art in Central Asia, how uh, the, the chapter by Tsai, Alexander Tsai, captures um, the overall uh, literature, expanding literature on how art becomes one of the ways of challenging the regime, um, especially in autocratic uh, contexts, but even uh, in democracies like Kyrgyzstan, we see how art, expressive art uh, challenges, let's say, in gender norms, uh, uh, corruption, uh, authoritarianism, and so on. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, Alexander's chapter on um... Contemporary art, I mean, I mean it, it's very close to my heart in many ways because I haven't written a book about film and identity in Kazakhstan, which explores how cinema is used as a site of resistance. And, and, and you know, Alexandra's chapter does exactly that, but talking sort of more broadly about public art, um, drawing uh, on, a, you know, some examples of different artists in Kazakhstan and, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, William Furman's chapter on language policy, is is fairly straightforward in in terms of just giving us this, an overview of um, language policy uh, in Central Asia since the the Gorbachev era, um, more or less explaining sorry exploring both the sort of the legal and policy um, um, and f- framework. So it's and you know he, 
William Furman has a sort of long history of, of, of writing on sort of language policy and language in Central Asia. So again, it's a, you know a, a senior scholar, um, you know, contributing and, and, and giving their sort of uh, wealth of uh, experience and, and research over the years into a particular area, um, and, and giving a kind of good synthesis of that in the chapter. Yeah, great. Thank you. And um, uh, I, I, I'm going to use that to kind of bridge and talk, and talk about this final section, religion. So um, especially reflecting on Erica's comments about uh, Svetlana Pieszko's piece, um, this is really great because we actually see um, here's an example of, of scholarship that is um, really pushing forward, challenging, you know, using new categories, um, to understand something that, that maybe people before had been interested in but didn't have the kind of language to talk about, right? And I'm curious, so in this section on religion, um, here we have kind of uh, an overview of the historical of Islam in the region, the way it's used in, in the contemporary moment. We have a chapter that looks at like the so-called Islamic revival. Um, we have another chapter that looks at how, how states in Central Asia securitize that is, use Islam um, to their own end to justify repress- uh, certain forms of repression, certain forms of co-op. Um, and then finally, we have um, this other section which looks at liberalism and Islam side by side. And then actually, I said finally too quickly because we have this this actual final chapter by Rico which looks at uh, pre-Islamic Tengrism uh, and its, its contemporary revival. Uh, among the Turkic populations in Central Asia. So can you tell us a little bit about the logic of these essays? And does it have, you know, does this section have the same sort of kind of revisionist challenge um, to older uh, ways of talking about religion uh, in the region that we that we see, you know, parallels with in, in the other sections of the book? Um, what's new here, basically, to, to simplify my question? Um. I mean, very briefly, in, in terms of what's new, I mean, I think the chapters try to give a sense of the diversity of Islam in Central Asia. So particularly the Islamic renewal in Central Asia, you know, explores uh, in particular the sort of the global influences of Islam within Central Asia as part of that revival. Um, you know, Ed's chapter, Ed Lemon's chapter on securitization, you know, Beds well into his, you know, sort of existing work on sort of the securitization of of religion in the region, and 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 of course challenging. I mean, I think Edward, Ed's work has always been very good at, at challenging some of those tropes that we had seen back in the, you know, in at, at the height of the war on terror, those tropes that we saw about Islam in Central Asia, uh, and the ways in which, um, to some extent, the regimes could get off um, scot free in, in terms of how you know some of the external powers uh, understood and related regime policy in terms of religion so by exploring its securitization you know that challenges those sort of old more, more sort of older conventional uh, policy narratives around um, islam in central asia uh, galim juzbekov's uh, chapter i mean galim galim's work i really like he 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 wrote uh, a chapter that was not too dissimilar to in a book that i edited with alessandro uh, frigerio called um, theorizing Central Asian politics. And I think Galim has a very, you know, he has a unique voice in terms of, he's got this very sort of normative perspective in in, in, in promoting this idea of the, um, the ways in which liberalism and Islam are cognizant. You know, they have a relationship. 
And actually, you can understand and observe that relationship in the practice of Islam in Central Asia. Um, and he, of course, you know, he's well read, you know, in terms of the, you know, the theology behind this as well. And that's always impressed me in his work and how he's able to marry that with political theory as well. So it's a very kind of impressive take on thinking about Islam in the region in a different way that's not in that sort of stereotype way of thinking about the sort of external influence of Wahhabism and uh, the threat of uh, Islamic um, uh, uh, militancy uh, that you often see, uh, particularly in the sort of in the policy community. And then my chapter on Tankerism, uh, I guess I, I I wanted to include it uh, so we it you know so we recognise that of course Islam is is not the only religion in Central Asia. Although there's a questions of the extent to which Tankerism is a religion, which I do try to sort of touch upon in that chapter. Um, and of course, ideally, you know, I think in, if, if we go back to thinking about what might be missing, you you could have a of course chapters about the 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 many other religions that exist in the region and the, the many other practices and, and re, re, religious practices which are also of course heavily repressed as well um uh, 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 you know anyone that you know checks the forum 18 website with any regularity will understand the levels of repression that that different faiths face in 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 the region um in some of the in, particularly in some of the region states like Turkmenistan so um it it was an effort to, to do that, and and I, I you know I draw mostly on on some of the work that I had done existing uh, existing work I'd done in the in the book on film, where I'd written about Tengrism in terms of a particular way of thinking about national identity in in, in Kazakhstan. So I sort of draw, draw on that to talk about the just Tengrist revival um, uh, that uh, that can be observed in uh, and 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 some of its political uses as well. Right, and then there is Bayram Balchi, of course, um, who discussed um, who's, uh, who concludes basically that um, there hasn't been much of a um, rise of fundamentalism or uh, how he the way he puts a drift towards uh, Iranian or Saudi forms of fundamentalism and radicalism in Central Asia, and that Islam in each country um, differs um, today, um, and most of it also determined by how. Uh, national nationalism and uh, ethnic belonging is defined in different countries. So yeah, he's um, he also has a really exciting chapter on um, the development, the dynamic uh, process of uh, Islam <laughs> um, in Central Asia over the past thirty years. Great, um, yeah, and I, I think this is a a, a, a really good uh, place to end. You know. Um, the volume because you know this is one of the contemporary issues that really matters um, so really quickly we're we're running low on time um, let's end with a, a, a kind of conversation and think about um, Central Asian stu- you know back to what we started the conversation with field of Central Asian studies where are we so my question for you what do you want to see in the next 10 years in Central Asian studies when we have to you know, write a new contemporary Central Asian handbook. So what I, for instance, what I want to see, uh, let me start because I feel so passionate. I'm sure everybody feels passionate about it as well. But um, I feel especially passionate about this because this pandemic period allowed um, a a lot of reflection, uh, reflecting on uh, where we are, who we are uh, within Central Asian studies. And I hope that in the next decade we will see uh, 
debates that feature really voices from around the world, not just uh, from the West or from Russia or even Central Asia, but it's a dynamic understand the dynamic discussion and debate. Um, and that, of course, that uh, there will be, as Rico said, there will be more uh, co-production of knowledge and we will be more ethical. And by we, I mean um, not Western scholars, but, but also to some extent diaspora scholars uh, be more ethical in how we go into the field, how we engage, what, what is it that we give back to the field? How do we co-produce knowledge that we're not just coming there um, and extracting knowledge uh, for our own career purposes? Um, so be more ethical, more discussions on the ethics of uh, research. And um, I hope that there will be more uh, ideas, new themes uh, emerging uh, from Central Asia that will uh, go beyond our uh, even um, the sections that were presented in this volume and deal with uh, environmental issues, with uh, um, with you know, with, so with understandings of. Uh, the, so historical reimagination of history is really a critical review of history, including Soviet history and pre-Soviet history, is another important um, part where Central Asian studies need to develop. Um, and uh, understanding also the, uh, the um, agency of different groups, uh, resilience of different groups uh, in Central Asia um, is another, I think, untapped um, part in the field of Central Asian studies. I don't think there's much left for me to say. I kind of agree with all of that, really. Um, I, I, I think what's the ethical side of things, I think, is really interesting in this, um, you know, I hope you know, moving away from a model which is based on extraction of knowledge that somehow doesn't pay back. And there are different things that you can do. I know, for example, in anthropology, there is a model of where, um, you know, if, if, if you go out into the field to do undertake research, that before you get anything published, you send your work to the people that you were working with in, in the field, uh, the, the people that you're interviewing or you're ensconced with in terms of their communities. And you, you know, and you get to some extent, you get their approval in that sense that actually, you know, representation of their voices works in that way. But also, I mean, in more, uh, you know, co-production of knowledge in terms of, you know, things like the handbook or edited volumes, um, um, books, research articles, research projects, big funded research projects in the US and the West, having local scholars, Central Asian scholars on board. Uh, actually, and, and, in, and particularly in terms of that, that allows, hopefully, to some extent, to counterbalance some of those sort of structural inequalities, because that is then about some redistribution of resources. So, yeah, some more redistribution resources. Uh, I'd, I'd, you know, I I'd like to see the field growing in terms of its, like Erica said, in terms of its diversity and not just Western scholars and you know local scholars, but from from all over the world to to be a global field in 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 that sense. Um, and for me, you know, one other area, I mean, I'd like to see more theorizing or theories emerging from the region about the region, but also that have um, uh, that have pertinence you know, beyond the region as well, like that really can speak to general, more abstract questions and really deliver uh, in terms of uh, developing our understanding and knowledge of, of sort of broader abstract questions and, and processes. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and I, yeah, there are lots of areas, of course, I think that 
the field could expand in 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 many ways. I, I'd like to, you know, more of this, even more of this kind of creativity in terms of the interdisciplinarity as well. I mean, that's something that really excites me about being in area studies. That even though I come from a politics background, you know, I spend a lot of my time reading geography work or anthropology work or history, you know, and I think that's actually a very um, joyous thing about being in area studies. Actually, is that sort of cross disciplinarity and the creativity that brings. Great, we have a lot of work to do in the next ten years. Um, so, to our listeners. Um, if if you uh, want to get the handbook, that's once again we're talking about the uh, Rutledge Handbook of Contemporary Central Asia, published. Yeah, yeah. If okay. we're going to do a bit where we're promoting the handbook in terms of buying it, one of the things I desperately want to apologise for to everyone is the price at the moment. Uh, this, of course, is nothing that Erica and I ever had any control over. So the hardback copy price is is um, you know predicated on this uh, you know, very expensive model that can be the case with with some publishers in the West. You know, um, the e-copy is not too expensive. We do hope that in time a paperback will come out fairly quickly that will be much more um, affordable for for everyone. Um, We would encourage colleagues uh, who sort of work at universities to buy a copy for the library and, um, you know, yeah, and hopefully that will give access to students. Great. I'll leave it with that. And uh, Erica and Rico, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.